cool thing happening. Many of you know Cody, our, not only our, our youth director, but also our, our worship leader. Um, he's a pretty multi-talented dude. Um, among his other talents are, are, is, uh, you know, kind of being the tigger to my Eeyore in the office. Um, <laughs> he's somebody that's just bursting with energy. Um, but I wanted to kind of take this opportunity and just sort of vocalize before he, he preaches this morning just how grateful um, I am for him, how, how grateful the staff is for him, how grateful the elders are for, for Cody. He takes on an enormous amount of work. Um, you know, well beyond even the the job description he was handed when he, <laughs> you know, was a, was interviewing for this position. He's he really is kind of a workhorse in the office, and um, just his his joy and exuberance and and zeal for the Lord, zeal for his family, is something that's contagious. And um, it's also pretty cool that he is kind of a nerd about the Old Testament, so he fits in pretty well in, in terms of just like conversations between him and I. And um, so it was exciting for for me to. Um, to to know that we kind of had him um, in the bullpen for this Advent series to preach on one of the minor prophets. So just wanted to pray for Cody before he begins. Lord, we are just so thankful for for Cody and um, and his uh, leadership in in worship just about every Sunday. Thank you for the um, expertise that he brings in so many different areas as far as sound and, and music and just brings in a lot of experience. Um, thank you also, Lord, for his sincerity of heart, um, for his real desire to see people discipled. Um, thank you for the way that, that as he's been leading, we've been seeing youth in this church um, diligent to seek the Lord in prayer and in scripture. We're grateful for that, Lord. Um, we know that um, Cody's a big part of of uh, what your spirit appears to be doing in our midst. Um, thank you for him this morning, Lord. I pray that you would give him clarity of mind as he preaches, um, clarity of speech so that we can understand. And I also ask, Lord, that um, that it would be to your glory at the end of the day. Um, I think just as preachers, we, we go up to... to bring the, the fruits of our work over the course of the week, and, and at the end of the day, um, we, we have to be very dependent on your spirit. Um, it is by your spirit that your word changes us. So I pray this morning, Lord, that your spirit would be operating in our midst to hear, um, through the words of Cody, the words of Micah. Amen. All right, so can you hear me? Yeah, good. Well, thank you, Mike, and then thank you, Michael, and the worship team for leading us in worship. Good morning. It's good to see you all here today. My name is, is Cody, like he said. Uh, I'm the worship and student ministry person. And so just right at the outset, it's probably a little odd to see me here, right? But it's a little odd for me too, actually, because I've never actually really been in front of this group of people. And so it's a little odd, but I'm really happy to be here. But Besides leading worship on a regular basis, if you don't know that what I do, kind of the other part of my job, is I get this amazing opportunity to get a bunch of junior high and high school students gathered together on Wednesday nights. What I do, it's really a great strategy, I trap them in a room and I talk to them for about 6 to 12 hours. (laughs) And so, it's actually much longer than that, sorry. Um, But, so when Mike asked me to preach... 
and then told me that I get to go long. Even on a family Sunday, I was like, yes, this is my time. No. Um, but there are, if there are any students here today, and there are, I see two. Oh, three. So four. So what I'm, what I'm imagining what they're thinking right now, they see me standing up here and they're probably going, yay, more of this guy. Or they're going, no, more of this guy. Either way, Ezra, you're stuck with me. But we're going to be spending our time in the book of Micah today in chapter 5. And if you're using one of the Bibles under your seats, if you want to pull one of those out, you can turn to page 778. And that's where we're going to be spending most of our time. And I wanted to take the opportunity, since this is my first time up here, to, to do things a little different today, right? And so whereas usually Mike or one of the other elders they'll get up and they'll bring their cup of coffee. I decided that I wanted to take it up a couple notches. And so... (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Let's get serious. (laughs) I want to take the opportunity today to look at what we've been going through. We've been going through, as a church, we've been going through these last few weeks, we've been going through... um, different prophecies in which these prophets were looking at what the Messiah would be like. And so we've been doing these last few weeks. We spent two weeks ago, uh, we were in Isaiah, and the week before that we were in Isaiah. And then last week we were in David, reading from uh, Psalm 22. But today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to go back to another one of these minor prophets. And and what I want to do is I want to go through verse by verse as we're going through Micah 5. I want to go through verse by verse, and then I want to save all of the application for the end. So stay with me. While you're turning there, what I want to do is I want to get into the passage. Before we even get into that passage, what I want to do is I want to do a little history lesson. (laughs) We we did this on uh, two Sundays ago, or two Wednesdays ago. And all the students came up with the sign that they said, when I said history lesson, they went, ooh. So we're going to do a history lesson. Thank you. We're going to do a little history lesson about what was going on in the time of Micah and the time that he was prophesying, which was around 742 to 686 B.C. And so Micah, he was actually one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. And he came from a small town called Moresheth in the southern kingdom of Judah. And he prophesied to the people in Jerusalem throughout the reign of three different kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And he also, uh, interestingly enough, Micah prophesied during the same time, roughly, as the prophet Isaiah. And so we've been reading from him, and so they kind of lived around the same time. And so during the time that Micah's prophesying, a lot of his prophesying is actually taking the form of preaching to the people about what God's word was saying, right? And, and, and he also was telling them what God was calling them to, where they were falling short and where God was calling them to. But then also, what he does throughout the book of Micah is he spends a lot of time prophesying about what would happen in the future, what God was going to do in the future. And so, so at the time that Micah is doing this, Israel had, had, had been split into the northern and southern kingdoms. And the kings on both sides of those were consistently... Not the greatest. Kind of like uh, the fruitcake that someone brings on Christmas, right? Unless you like fruitcake. I know my mom loves fruitcake. 
But, but there were consistently kind of bad kings and they would disobey. But then there were also a few good ones sprinkled in here and there, kind of like the sprinkles on top of the cookies that you put. As soon as you bite into that cookie, all the sprinkles fall off. Uh, that's not my commentary on the, the, like the kings at the time. It's more my criticism of cookies. <laughs> Get your act together, Christmas cookies. So these kings were more and more breaking covenant with God and disobeying the law. And this disobedience and rebellion wasn't just the higher-ups, like the kings and the leaders. It also kind of went down the ladder to a bunch of people claiming to be prophets or people whose job it was to bring the message of God to the people. And in, right in the beginning of the book of Micah, Micah is seeing these prophets telling people that God will protect them if they pay the prophets. So basically, like, like God will protect you if you're willing to give me money. And so a lot of the first two chapters of the book, Micah is, is seeing around him and preaching against a lot of greed, a lot of injustice. He's preaching against the mistreatment of the poor, which has led these poor people to just a loss of hope. It's let, led them to having their land stolen from them. And it made them basically desolate, all while the leaders were complacent, they were materialistic, and they reduced their relationship of God and turned it into this consumerist mindset of, how can I get in life out of God? Like, what, how can I get what I want in life out of God? Basically like, a, God, what have you done for me lately? And so what he does, Micah, is throughout the whole book, he calls them out. He essentially acts as a preacher on God's behalf. He brings this message of God to the leaders and the false prophets. And this is basically what that message is. God is against them. See, chapter 1 begins with God poetically appearing over Israel, bringing judgment The result of their disobedience, the result of their sin, would be God's righteous judgment. We're on page 778, chapter 5, but if you want to, put your finger in chapter 5 and turn back over to chapter 3 for a second, verse 9. Chapter 3, at verse 9, it says this. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, Because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. And so during this whole time, the Assyrian Empire is on the rise and conquering land and other kingdoms pretty rapidly. Like like rapid expansion of a company that's doing really well, has really high projected sales, but then adds in a splash of murder you know, hostile takeover, violence, pillage, plunder. But Micah, he, he lets the people of Israel know, and he goes, basically, he's like, okay, Assyria, you see them over there? Assyria, the enemy off in the distance that you're not really paying attention to, uh, they're actually going to come and take over. 
They're going to come and they're going to take over. And then after that, another kingdom called Babylon will rise up, come attack you, and take over. And all of this is going to result in you being carted off into exile. Because of your disobedience, God has withdrawn his protection from you. All your riches, all your power, all your pride, it's going to be stripped from you. And you're going to be humiliated. Wait, (laughs) is this actually the passage that Mike planned on me teaching before Christmas? No, yeah, it is. Dude, Mike, it's a little grim, man. All right, stick with me. Even in the middle of all this bad news that Micah brings, throughout the book of Micah, there's this string weaving throughout the whole book of this theme of hope and restoration even in the darkness, of blessing even in the judgment. And at the end of chapter 2, even in the middle of judgment, God reminds Israel that he will bring his people back. He will gather the faithful remnants of Israel and will set them together like sheep in a fold, like the, sh- the flock in its pasture. So even in the middle of judgment, God doesn't forget those who are faithful. But, before things are going to get better, they're going to get worse. And in 722, the capital of the northern kingdom named Samaria was conquered by the Assyrians and people were taken into exile. And then in 701 B.C., the king of Assyria named Sennacherib, and you heard me right, Sennacherib. And actually, if you're taking notes, if you're taking notes on paper this morning um, or on your phone, I encourage you to write down, make a note that Sennacherib is a great name for a rib stand at a Bible-themed event or carnival, if you plan on opening one. <laughs> um, but anyways, Sennacherib, <laughs> you're never going to hear that name again and not think of that. Sennacherib, he attacked the city of Jerusalem, and so now we find ourselves in chapter 5. So let's go back to chapter 5. And now that we kind of know what's going on, I want to just kind of walk through this this passage that we're going to be reading today. The passage begins, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. So stop there. This is essentially a call to arms. Like, Micah's telling them, God's message is to prepare for the worst, to get your armies ready, the equivalent today of get your weapons locked and loaded, get your Kevlar vests on and your helmets on, visors down, and get ready, because the enemy's coming. He says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. And O daughter of troops is Micah's way of reminding the people of Israel that, of their history of wars, of unrest constantly in the country, even within the country. They've grown up with war and violence as their next-door neighbors and peace being a far cry from reality. And so he reminds them of that history. And then look what he says. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, for siege is laid against us. Remember in 701 BC, the time that Micah is writing this prophecy and recording this prophecy, the city of Jerusalem was under attack by Sennacherib. No longer did the greed, the prosperity, the materialism, no longer did that help protect the leaders and the prophets in Jerusalem. Now, the enemy was at the gates. 
outside the walls, attacking the city. What Micah had told them before is now coming true. And on top of that, Micah is telling him, get ready, because this isn't the end. It's going to get worse. Back in verse 10 of chapter 4, Micah had told the people that now you shall go out from the city and dwell into open, in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. And so the Assyrians are attacking Jerusalem. And the people are reminded currently that things look bad. But don't worry, they're going to get worse. God's judgment will bring the Assyrians and the Babylonians to reduce Jerusalem and the temple to rubble and carry off the people into prison, into exile. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The picture here is of the enemy striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with the rod. And this picture that they paint, that they kind of paint for us, would be highly, highly embarrassing for an official, turning the king into a whipping boy. It's not just embarrassing like splitting your pants while worshiping or tripping up onto the stage and falling flat on your face. Yes, both of those are examples from personal experience, but we're not going to talk about it. (laughs) This is much more than that. This humiliation is is, is reputation-ending. It's crippling. Let's keep going. I want you to imagine with me the people in the city hearing this message from God through the prophet Micah, who's basically saying, okay, Things are bad. The city's under attack by the Assyrian army, but that's not the worst of it. Micah says, get your armor on and get ready because things are going to get worse. The enemy around us are going to take over, and the kings would end up failing to protect their kingdom. The leaders of Israel have relied on their riches, the size of their military, advancing the kingdom through war, and the protection of their city walls instead of relying on the God whom they were called initially to serve. And the result of that is that things look pretty bad. But then something comes that's different. In verse 2, we see something really interesting. This is where the the tide starts to turn in this prophecy. Remember before I mentioned there's a string of hope and restoration kind of weaving throughout the book. Blessing from God even in the middle of judgment. Hope. What comes here is that string of hope that has been weaved into the story from the beginning of the book. And it's a message from God about how he will restore his people. And how a new king will come onto the scene. God reminds them that the struggle that they're enduring now, the upcoming pain, the future exile, all of that is not the end. He hasn't forgotten those who are faithful. So I want to look at this message of hope. Verse 2, we're finally there. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And and the leaders in Jerusalem have been humiliated. And and they may have been unable to bring peace, unable to protect the people. The prophets may have lied. They have cheated the people and given them a reason to lose hope. But there is another king coming. A new chapter begins, but... 
it's not going to be how you expect. No, this king is going to come up from the grassroots. A shoot from the stump of Jesse will arise out of Bethlehem Ephrathah, essentially unincorporated territory five miles outside of Jerusalem. See, Messiah has come to us not in the way that we expected. I think a lot of us, we have high expectations for the holidays. For some of us, those are really high expectations, especially if you're hosting the holidays. We want it to be Instagram-worthy. The food has to be just flawless, five-star quality food that we've spent little to no time making. The, the presents have to be that make everyone the happiest they've ever been in their entire life. And the people have to be constantly, from start to finish, the most entertained they've ever been. And on top of that, the house has to be immaculate from start to finish, never showing any signs of dust or dirt. But others might have really low expectations for the holiday season. Maybe because of what your holidays were like growing up. Not too happy and cheerful, but more arguing and frustration. Or maybe you've lost a loved one. And and this time of year always reminds you that they're gone. And so the expectation that you have of the holiday season is, I'm going to be sad. And I'm going to be longing for the one that I've missed. See, we all have expectations for what this year will be like, what this time of year will be like. And the people in the time of Micah, they're in this situation where everything around them is pretty bad. Yet they see this line of hope saying that a Messiah will come. So what do we expect of a Savior? What what do we expect Messiah to be like? I think, first of all, we would usually expect a Messiah to be reputable, well-known, right? But where is he from again? Let's pause for a second and just ask the question, why Bethlehem? I mean, of all places, why Bethlehem? Of course, we know the place now. We've heard it in songs. We know the name Bethlehem. But did we ever stop to ask for a second, why? You guys remember Amazon, right? <laughs> like it's not used anymore. <laughs> but remember a year or so back, Amazon, when they decided to build a second headquarters? You remember hearing about this in the news? If you remember when this was happening, it was a huge, huge deal. Like way bigger than I thought it would be. Like I was thinking it was like, we're going to build a new headquarters. And someone's like, cool, bro. And then they were just going to build it. But it was a huge deal. Because what, what, what came along with the new headquarters for Amazon was jobs, right? And jobs and, and, and growth in a city. And so what happened, it's really crazy. If you remember, they had like 230 cities that entered. It was basically a contest, to see who could entice Amazon to come to their city. In these cities, they really layered on the schmooze thick. Like, it was thick, man. Like, like cities like Denver put up billboards. You'd be driving, and, and I, I looked it up, and there were a lot of these billboards that says, Denver loves Amazon. Colorado loves Amazon. Like, we know what you're doing, right? 
Videos were made, websites were created in so many cities trying to entice Amazon executives to pick them. And then, and then Amazon picked New York City and Washington DC for their headquarters. Which a lot of us, when we were, if you were following the story, we were like, yeah, we're not surprised, right? You chose the biggest cities out of the two, right? But then after that, the cities that weren't picked, this is the best part, they didn't even give up. Like, like it's done. And they were just like, nope, we're going to still try and get Amazon. Maybe, maybe we'll get number three, right? And, and, and they didn't do that. They still didn't give up. But so imagine that instead of picking Washington, D.C. Or, or New York, they actually ended up backing out of New York and now it's just Washington, D.C. But imagine that instead of picking Washington, D.C., they backed out of it and Amazon put out a press conference Jeff Bezos, he walks up to the podium and he lets reporters know that they're backing out of building that new headquarters in D.C. where all the necessary qualifications are met. You know, they have like a good airport. It's easy to travel to, right? They're backing out of D.C., but have instead decided on a new town. Just like now, the room would be hushed in anticipation. Jeff Bezos, he says, the new second headquarters for Amazon, it's going to be in Bug Tussle, Kentucky. <laughs> or Slick Poo, Idaho. And there's my one poop joke as a youth pastor. Got to get one in. It's my one poop joke to appease the students here today. But by the way, those are all real towns. Dead serious. I didn't make a single one up. That's basically what happens in this passage. The message from God gives people the hope of a new king, but then this bombshell is dropped on them that the new king is coming from someplace in the middle of nowhere. All the qualifications that people would want from the king, the one from God who's going to set everything straight, who's going to bring peace, who's going to conquer the enemy, all of those necessary things that would make us think would make us think that a king is going to come from somewhere substantial, like Jerusalem. Or at least a bigger city. Jerusalem had walls to protect the people. What walls of any substantial size does Bethlehem have that can keep any enemy out? See, Bethlehem was tiny, insignificant, too small a town to be counted among the clans of Judah. Jerusalem had plenty of citizens to make an ample army. But Bethlehem? It's too small to supply any sort of army in this time of war. We're talking about maybe a couple hundred people. The people probably heard the king would come from Bethlehem and laughed. Actually, no, I take that back. They probably were mad. Like, dude, are you kidding me? You see the Assyrian army attacking us right now? And you're saying things are going to get worse. And then you're saying the answer is of all, to all of this is that the new king is going to come from Bethlehem? Why? Bethlehem. Because before God breathed the breath of life into our world, before the foundations of this world were set into place, God set his sights on little supposedly insignificant, insufficient, and unimportant Bethlehem Ephrathah to bring about his plan for humanity. And this wasn't because Bethlehem had anything to offer. 
But when time came for the Messiah to be born, there wasn't a nice hotel for them to stay. There wasn't a, even a nice bed for them to lay in. The fact that God chose Bethlehem Ephrathah shows that God's plan wasn't based on human achievement, but based upon what will give him glory. Bethlehem would have been known to the people at the time because of the king who had come from there in the past, who also came from the grassroots, who turned out to be great. They'd have been hearing about this, but, but see, that wasn't the end of Bethlehem's story. That wasn't even the major part. That wasn't the climax. Not only did David come from Bethlehem, now another king would come from, from what people around deemed unimportant, insignificant, and insufficient. And this king would be different and would surpass that of David. Oftentimes, what may seem insignificant, insufficient, and unimportant to us is not so to God. It is God who grows the oak from the, straw, the small acorn. And I just want to look for a quick second at Matthew chapter 2. It says this, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star and when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And this is pretty great here, what the wise men say. And they actually misquote Micah, and it's pretty great in the way that they do it. Check it out. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Look what he says. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. These, these wise men actually misquote it. They change it from you who are least, too small to be counted, and they change it to you are, who are by no means least. See, the Messiah, this coming king, he didn't come the way anyone expected him to. He he didn't come on their timeline. He didn't come to their location. More like the opposite. But as we keep reading, we'll find out it's exactly what we need. Messiah did not come to us in the way we expected. He came to us in the way we need. See, this Messiah wouldn't come how people expected him to. He wouldn't come riding in on a white horse, sword drawn, decked in armor, hailing from the big city with an army of hundreds of thousands behind him, all prepared for battle. This Messiah would come to a small village of Bethlehem as an infant born in a feeding trough because there was no room for him anywhere else. He's totally helpless with no weaponry, no defenses, no military experience. And the only people he is with are two brand new first-time parents. This is the king who has come to save his people. And while it may not be what you are expecting, it is what you need. It is what I need. Here's why. Let's keep going. Verse 2 again. 
But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel. But he's not just any king whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The first thing that we see about this Messiah is that he is the ancient one. And calling the Messiah the ancient one is a claim to be God. Micah is telling us that first of all, the king who comes is God. And God does not fade away with age. Because he he was present before the age began. He won't die and return to dust, put in some mausoleum where people can visit and reminisce about how great a king he once was, saying, remember when he was king? I wish we could have him back. He won't be forgotten, no matter how hard people may try. See, he was there before the beginning. He was present with the people in 701 BC. He was there when they were in exile. He was with the early church, and he is still with us now. He will not become out of date, old-fashioned, or obsolete. He is the ancient one, which means that he is not just another anointed one. He is the anointed one. This king is the one we need because he is God. Verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. This is a reminder to us that that it's not going to happen on your timetable. But then he will stand and he will shepherd. Look at verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Messiah won't fail to care for his people because the good shepherd will care for his flock. Those who live under God's reign won't be found wanting more because he is the one who leads them to green pastures and still waters. He is the one who actively protects his people, cares, and provides for his people. He is the one who fights back the wolves. Those who have been faithful in exile will not be forgotten, but will be brought back together when she who is in labor finally gives birth. And even though the people of Judah have been scattered around the world in exile and others, The shepherd will bring them back together, not only physically, but spiritually. I just did a super interesting footnote here real quick. When Jesus comes and is born in Bethlehem, who's the first group of people that seek him out? Shepherds. The huge group of shepherds out in the field. Not kings, not a huge audience, not massive armies. Lowly shepherds watching their flocks in the middle of the night. The good shepherd comes to shepherd his people, and the first people to visit him give us this picture of how God will care for us. He is the one we need because, look again at verse 4. He will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now, check this out. For now, now he, will, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He's the one we need because he shall be great beyond the walls into the nations. See, our Messiah's greatness won't be bound by city city or nation walls. He won't be hiding behind them. But his greatness, his glory, his majesty will be known throughout the world. His glory and his greatness won't be known just within the city, but throughout the whole world. See, the reason that he comes the way he does is not just to light up one area of darkness, but to eradicate the darkness. 
His name shall be great. He shall be great to the ends of the earth in verse 5. And he shall be their peace. The Messiah, he, he will be a king of power. He'll be a king of majesty. He'll be a king of sovereign strength. His words will actually be a sword and will cut our hearts to the core. He will come and he'll call people to abandon the lives that they lead to follow him. Literally a call to die. He will tear them away from the sin that they once adored to now come and adore him. But the birth of Jesus Messiah is this point in history where we see peace between us and God start to take shape. We know that this king, this king was born, an infant, born to die on a cross to bring peace between God and us. See, this king, he's different than any other kings before him. He's different than all other kings after him. See, kings in the, fa- in the past, they may have failed to bring peace to the people and keep it, but this king is the author of peace. Kings in the past may have failed in protecting their kingdom from evil, but this king will overcome sin and death. Kings in the past may have failed to call people to return back to God, but this God is God in the flesh. Come to us to bring us back to him. He comes from much more royal a background than just the line of David. How amazing is that not only he is the shoot from the root of Jesse, but he is the one who was there before the root of Jesse began. Make no mistake, he is not a Messiah. He is not another anointed one, another king who will come, rise up, and fall like every other before him. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the king. He is Jesus. The king's coming will be the signal for the nation to be freed from their enemies. And the Messiah's coming will be the signal for the world to be freed from their sin. This prophecy was made 700 years or so before Jesus was born. And it showed the people of God all those years waiting Expectantly, waiting, and waiting. And it showed them that there was hope. And he called them to hold on to that hope. Hope that the chapter in their story wasn't the end of God's book. Hope that the world around them wasn't forever bent to chaos, injustice, and violence. Hope that redemption would come, that reconciliation for people and God would happen. Through the prophet Micah, God reminds us today that no matter what happens in our world around us, no matter who's in power, no matter what nations are important at the time, no matter what happens, that hope is not dead. And though Jesus didn't come in the way we expected, it is the way that you and I need today. See, as we celebrate Advent and Christmas, the story of our Messiah, in which a king was born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, a small, seemingly insignificant village, but now the birthplace of God in the flesh. 
who comes to reign, who is the ancient of days, who deserves all the worship and glory, who is the good shepherd come to save us, who is the bringer of peace, whose name will be great among the nations so that every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus is king. This story injects hope into the holidays because we're not just living and reminiscing about the way things once were. We're looking forward and waiting to the time when our king returns. And this truth is something that we today can hold on to as much as they did then. This passage, this, this message from God, this prophecy fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Messiah into that little Bethlehem town invites you and I to be hope bearers and messengers of this hope to the nations. Theologian and writer Walter Brueggemann, he, he writes this, he says, hope is the refusal to accept the reading of reality, which is the majority opinion. I'm going to say that again. Hope is the refusal to accept the reading of reality, which is the majority opinion. It is a way of subverting the dominant royal embrace of despair. And then check this out. He says this. He says, hope is the decision to which God invites Israel. And I believe us today. Hope is the decision which God invites Israel. A decision against despair against permanent consignment to chaos, against oppression, against barrenness, and against exile. In this time that you and I live in Advent Part 2, we are invited to pick up and hold on to hope, to decide against despair, to choose the joy that is found only in the salvation given to us by Jesus and to bring that hope to the nations starting with those around us. Sing loudly of the hope we have in Jesus for as long as you have voice and then keep singing. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, and say it with me, glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so often we, we feel insignificant, insufficient, and unimportant. And God, yet you came to us and you were made low to save us. And I pray that God, that, that no matter how we feel in this time of year. No matter what we're going through, I pray that we would hold on to hope. That we would sing of your praise. That we would decide against despair and choose the joy that you give us by the cross. God, I pray that 
you would equip us to bring hope to the nations. God, would you equip us to bring hope, the hope of your name and your cross to those around us. God, we love you, and in your name I pray. Amen. Merry Christmas. Amen. Thank you, Cody. Would you stand with me? Advent is not only a time of waiting, but it's also a time of wonder. And the song that we're going to sing together is about the wonder and the mystery of God making himself low in order to raise us up and to redeem us from the wrath of God. Thank you.